<laughs> I did something else that lots of people in Florida do. I decided I'm going to own my own real estate office. Um, I did that right in like 2006, which was like Sweet. awesome timing for real estate. Uh, yeah. And between and during 2006, I wound up with several offices, um, starting new ones and actually acquiring something uh, that was failing at the time, even though the market was great. Um, then the market crash hit and my hair was on fire like everybody else's. And I'm wondering, you know, what on earth am I gonna do? Uh, and I, I saw an interview with Warren Buffett uh, where he talked about when he's investing, he's always running towards the fires. That's, hmm. that's when you make money. You don't make money running away from the problems. You go into the problems. And I thought, well, hey, I'm already in the problems. So <laughs> I don't have to do any running, which is nice. Um, and I realized that it was like a really good opportunity to, to grow, grow a business quickly through mergers and acquisitions. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast brought to you by Cardavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. This is episode 61. Our guest is David Wolf, and the title today is, catch this, Run Towards the Fire, Growing and Scaling Your Business in the Midst of Chaos. David Wolf is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Ocean Habitats, an organization that combines his passion for in the environment with his skills and experience in growing a business. More importantly, David brings to this the experience of growing a small real estate agency and brokerage into a enterprise that covered the entire United States. And his final year before he sold out was generating $10 billion in sales per year. And he's going to talk today about what it takes to grow and scale a business, what it takes in terms of creativity, innovation, finding those opportunities in the midst of chaos, and especially what it takes to be a focused, on-point leader. So listen in if you're ready to grow your business and scale your enterprise. Welcome to the Impact Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are back with the Impact Leadership Podcast with Craig and I, and we have another interesting guest today. Amazing that. Another interesting guest doing interesting things, which makes this so much fun. We've got David Wolf with us. And just to be clear, this is not Mr. Wolf. We've made it very clear in the pre-interview. And David is currently the executive director of an organization called Ocean Habitats. They design, build, and install artificial reefs under boat docks. They've got thousands of units in the water. And as he's going to share, he's been able, by his own choices, to turn his passion and his desire for environmental impact into a business. Hmm. You know, he, his degree was in marine biology and biological oceanography. And as you'll hear, didn't do a lot with that for a while. <laughs> no. But decided to go back to his roots and his passion, which is always a great journey. So welcome, David. Yeah, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So David, 
already can tell on paper it's an interesting journey. Give us a little bit of the story that brought you where you are today. Well, it, it started off with my family moving to Florida from Chicago. So a little bit more environmental things going on. <laughs> that would be a pretty big culture shift. Yeah, I've been growing up in the Windy City. Um, yeah, I kind of, I fell in love with the ocean, nature in general. You know, we live near the Everglades. So I went to college. I decided to be a marine biologist, not realizing that you make like $15,000 a year, which <laughs> can, can make life a bit difficult when you're not living at home with mom and dad. Um, so <laughs> I was okay with it while I was single, but I met my wife uh, working at a public aquarium that I helped uh, build. And um, she wanted to get married and she wanted to do things like own homes and have kids and eat, (laughs) own clothing. I had to do something else, at least on the side, to uh, make any of those happen because 15 grand isn't going to cut it. Um, She was also a marine biologist. So, you know, together we we made 30, which wasn't bad (laughs) in the the 90s, but it wasn't good either. (laughs) So um, I did... What everybody in Florida does, I got a real estate license and I started selling real estate. And um, I was 22 years old and I looked like I was 15. I had a baby face and I'm trying to talk to senior citizens. Um, It started off slow, but uh, it quickly, I became like rookie of the year. Uh, I was number one agent, then I had number one team, you know, group uh, in the area. And I quickly realized that like my broker got a lot of money off of my activities. So (laughs) I did something else that lots of people in Florida do. I decided I'm going to own my own real estate office. Um, I did that right in like 2006, which was like awesome timing for real estate. Uh, And between, and during 2006, I wound up with several offices, um, starting new ones and actually acquiring something uh, that was failing at the time, even though the market was great. then the market crash hit and my hair was on fire like everybody else's and i'm wondering you know what on earth am i going to do uh and i i saw an interview with warren buffett uh where he talked about when he's investing he's always running towards the fires that's Hmm. that's when you make money you don't make money running away from the problems you go into the problems and i thought well hey i'm already in the problems so (laughs) i don't have to do any running which is nice um and I realized that it was like a really good opportunity to, to grow, grow a business quickly through mergers and acquisitions. Hmm. And I also looked at, um, you know, when you purchase a home, all the different companies that make money from that purchase. Yeah. So long story short, I ended up opening up title, escrow, insurance, mortgage. I kind of went on and on. And we use real estate office as a central, uh, like, uh, like middle of the wheel and spokes going out to all these other businesses around it. Wow. And it worked so well that my partners and I started going out and acquiring other real estate offices in other cities and just plugging in all of our companies on top of that, just kind of mm. cookie cutter, punching it out. And we went to the main real estate states around the, the country. And before I knew it, I was operating multiple businesses doing over a billion dollars a year in sales. And I was working about 115 hours a week. (laughs) I was delegating. I I didn't have a problem with not delegating. There was just, I was stretched too thin. I was looking at working in Australia and in Europe. And I was losing my mind with with the success we were having. Um, But I realized it was taking a huge toll on me. 
health wise, uh, my marriage. I'm not seeing my kids cause I'm flying all over the country yeah. and uh, I'm not having fun anymore. Hmm. So my partners thought I was insane, but they uh, accepted my, my wanting to sell out of everything we were in. Um, and I, it took three years to get out of 18 companies uh, that we had uh, around the country. And when I completed that process and was feeling better, you know, I kind of like, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Cause I don't like to play golf, which is not a good thing in Florida. <laughs> You're that's in the wrong really state. Easy, that's a really easy hobby in Florida. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've got kids I'm raising and um, you know, while I did really, really well, you can't just sit and watch TV the rest of your life. And so I thought about, you know, what's a time in my life where I had fun doing something and it was going back to the research work I did in college. Hmm. Um, so I, re- I started ocean habitats. It was to, bring research work I did in the 90s, um, kind of bring it to fruition. Uh, it was about 80% done at the time. I spent a couple years with uh, a couple of my teenage kids uh, perfecting uh, what we I had been working on with others in the past. And everyone thought, told me I was nuts. It didn't work 20 years ago, Dave. Why is it going to work now? Um, I got it to work. And kind of the rest is history. <laughs> and that that growing those questions uh, actually helped me a lot with taking this kind of passion project and turning it into something that, that is actually happening. You know, mm-hmm. like you talked about, we're coming up on 5,000 units in the water now. Wow. And we're nope. getting ready to start mass production. So can you tell us what, what does that actually look like when you say creating an ocean habitat underneath like docks and boats, what does that look like? Well, it's, it's not very big actually. It's, <clears throat> It's three feet long, but two feet wide, and it's, it is two feet high. It looks kind of like a parking garage. In fact, actually, a little, <laughs> little okay. model here. It looks something like this. It really does look uh, like a parking a, garage. <laughs> yeah, it's got a, a float on top, and then there, there, you can see there's- Wow. There's, uh, so fish just go in and park? Place. Yeah, basically, <laughs> what, what, it, what it does is it, it replicates mangrove tree prop roots in the water, oh. or uh, saltwater marsh grasses. And so what, what those areas are is they're the, um, the nursery habitat for about 70% of the life in the ocean that you see. Wow. So, uh, that stuff spends some amount of time growing up in those environments and then leaves and goes offshore or does whatever it does. Uh, this recreates that. So things like oysters grow on it. So they attach and they live on it. They filter water coming through. And then little baby fish, shrimp, and crabs that just hatched out and are microscopic, some of them. You know, they're nothing but food for everything else. They're able to get in there, hide, find food, grow up and get bigger, faster, stronger. So basically, you have sea monkeys in the real ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So one of these units, a full-size unit, it it takes about nine months for life to get on it and to grow. Okay. Um, But once you get to that point, um, it will filter on average 30,000 gallons a day. That's the animals on it feeding. So that's about like a backyard swimming pool. And then it'll grow on average about 500, uh, you know, fish, shrimp, and crabs um, will grow up on there and leave. It'll start off with more, but, you know, survival of the fittest, they don't all make it. Um, So the people who put these under their docks, they're doing this work with each unit they put in. We've had people put as many as 100 in at a very large dock. it also attracts a lot of larger life around your dock. People have large fish. They're there to, to prey on the babies. Dolphins come to prey on the big fish. Um, wow. Yeah, a lot, so lot of people a put a mini ecosystem there. 
Yeah, yeah, it's wow. you know, in in Florida along the coast. On average, we've lost about fifty-five to sixty percent uh, of the coastal wetlands they, for, from development, yeah. and they're not coming back. But what we what we replace them with are these seawalls and docks and things that we utilize for boats. And you can use the wasted space underneath piers and docks to put these units in and have that life flourish there that used to be there before development. Wow. So who are you selling to, David? I mean, who's the customer? Are they property owners or are they governmental entities? Uh, a little bit of everything. It's mostly private property owners. Probably 90, about 2 or 3% right now of the units we've sold have gone to individuals with their house and their dock behind it. Marinas buy it. Uh, we have had city and county uh, governments purchase them as pilot projects to kind of encourage residents to buy them. Hmm. We've even had the federal government buy them through the EPA, uh, through one of the uh, nonprofit groups down here. They, they put some in. So, um, but yeah, it's mostly individuals. Wow. And how did, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so how did you, how did your research actually start up with this? What was it that, that you were doing in your research that uh, led to this? Failing at something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I needed volunteer hours uh, as part of my degree program. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also needed a job because, you know, you, you want to have money when you're 18. So <laughs> I, I started uh, the reoccurring theme of my life. I'm trying to find money. I don't have any. <laughs> uh, I, I volunteered first at a, at a nonprofit called um, Marine Habitat Foundation. And then I was quickly hired because they had some people leave um, trying to steal the research work, which didn't work out for them. But uh, they were doing ocean ranching work. So it was along the same idea, but very, very large units, something like 10 feet long by eight feet wide. And you were going to have them in a bay and they were going to produce thousands and thousands of like stone crab or spiny lobster. And then those would populate an area and get into the, to the traps when they're big enough and you know, it, it'd be a way to um, produce expensive seafood. Hmm. That that work failed because of the size of them and all of the filter-feeding animals, the oysters and mussels and sea squirts and, and all that, made the units extremely heavy. So we had to add a lot of flotation to keep them from going down to the bottom because they perform much better floating at the surface um, for a number of reasons. and. Okay. All that stuff on there, though, even though we could keep it floating, it made the unit very rigid. It couldn't flex. And so when you have a storm, which we have those occasionally in Florida, <laughs> they would just break up and be destroyed. Oh, wow. So the, okay. the work failed. But basically what we did is we miniaturized it, realizing that a lot of things that were causing the failure were actually extremely beneficial in a polluted canal system hmm. um, to help clean that water up. So kind of out of a failure, this grew. So those act as as both house and filter for the the biome that's around. Correct. Yeah. They, wow. Everything you'd find living in the properties of mangrove trees here in South Florida is what you find here. The, the animals swimming around, the, the unit, the animals that are attached to the unit. Um, it just completely recreates that. It's designed so it can't completely fill up and have the inside die off because there's no water coming through. Um, and we figured that out by failing about 300 times. Um, <laughs> Say that again, David. I think that's an important statement. I think so, too. Yeah, we, this, we had over 300 designs that failed before we had 
successes that grew out of that. Wow. We had a little over 30 different kind of units um, that grew out of that research work, but the actual mini reef is currently model 107 of that line that came from the failure. So first we failed hundreds of times. And then as we started having success, we still had to refine it over a hundred times to get something that's a product that you wow. can tell a consumer, this is what it does. This is how long it lasts. This is what it can and cannot survive. This is your maintenance, like, you know, to get to where we are now. Yeah. Um, it would have happened a little faster if I didn't take 16 years off to go into real estate, but <laughs> uh, I don't know how well the company would be doing if I didn't go do that. So, yeah. um, you know, you, you're going to fail in business. It's getting up and learning from it and moving forward that, that creates something large. Um, most people fail and they give up. And that's why over 90% of businesses fail in 10 years. Uh, you just can't handle any more grief from it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad we repeated that because that is, uh, we talked about that a lot. And one of the things we've talked about on the podcast and with our guests, and even I know in Craig and our work, Every leader says just what you did. You have to be willing to fail. But what we're seeing is that very few organizations create a culture where it's acceptable to fail. Or it's safe. It's a great talk or it's safe. But everybody's, you know, because you're talking about product development. And I think people understand that the products will fail to get to the right one. Right. But they don't translate that into day-to-day not about just making constant mistakes, but recognizing when you try new things, when you run towards the fire, which I love and I want to talk more about Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not always going to be pretty. It's going to be ugly most of the time. (laughs) I, you know, I, I, I created a real estate entity that eventually the last year that I ran it fully and we did over $10 billion in sales, but I spent three years juggling fireballs everywhere. Um, always on the brink of things flying apart because of you're in the middle of, you know, this huge recession happening and people aren't acting the right way and people are trying to steal from you and you have partners you have to get rid of because they're trying to steal from you. And, you know, I was in the, in the middle of an inferno all the time. Um, You just have to keep moving so you don't get singed too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, David. Um, I know we'll come back to ocean habitats and the passion project you clearly scaled a very large enterprise. And one question that came to me is, at what point was that really intentional scaling? Because the way you told the story, it sounded like the beginning was, well, here's this cool idea. And now we got an office with the, we're the hub and the spokes. Next thing you know, you're doing $10 billion in business. How much was strategic and how much was all of a sudden we had this enterprise? Well, definitely when I started out, I had no, no inkling of I'm going to grow a big company and I'm going to have 900 plus people working for me and thousands of vendors and subcontractors. It started off with survival because I needed at the time $70,000 a month to pay all my monthly bills because I had investment properties and all kinds of things. So, you know, I had to clear almost 900 grand a year just getting out of bed just to have my head above water. Um, I had overextended myself a bit as a 20 something year old <laughs> who thought fancy cars and giant homes were great ideas. Um, so you were slightly putting, leveraged. Yeah. And putting no money down. Cause why would you put money down? You know, <laughs> but uh, it started off with survival. 
it, it, it turned into realizing, okay, there are lots of different opportunities here to make more money, to not just now survive now that like everything's okay, but create a business that, you know, I can, I can know that I can do something special, like for my children growing up, I can take care of my wife and, and, and my needs. Um, I can maybe make some impact on other people's lives because I was starting to coach uh, like real estate agents and mortgage brokers and people mm-hmm. like how they can grow their business. So just kind of like the, the early steps were assembling this thing so that life was like stable again. But then because of the success of some of the real estate offices, uh, like brand new starts and getting awards for you know, almost setting a record in the, in the, in the franchise system that we're in, uh, people start to find out about what you're doing. You know, you stand up on a stage and you get, you know, Hey, you were second place, uh, new launch of the year. You had 42 agents. You lost to an office that started off with over 400 barely. People are like, Holy cow. How did you do that? You're in the middle of Pennsylvania with this little <laughs> cow town. And I don't think they realized Penn State University was there. It's not exactly town, <laughs> but yes. we did kick butt with 42 people or whatever. Um, and so they start calling you and the people who are calling you are saying, Hey, we're going out of business. Um, we, how do you do what you do? So I started consulting. My original idea is well, I'm going to help other people save their business. But then you realize quickly as you're talking to them that, um, they're the reason why their business is failing. They, they're they're <laughs> so emotionally, true. yeah, they're emotionally wrapped up in it. You know, they've yeah. got all their money, all their time. They're watching their money go out the the, the door. They they know someone offered them a million dollars for this company eighteen months ago, and now their wife is divorcing them because they're losing their house and everything else. Hmm. You can't help them fix that when someone gets that far down the drain, basically. Um, and then so they started saying, do you want to buy it? And I'm like, well, it's valueless. Um, but you know, we, we, can, we can take it over uh, you know, for an asset purchase. Um, so we were, we were buying companies that literally had million and multi-million dollar valuations a year or two earlier for a 1000 to $1,500 asset purchase. Um, and what we were buying is just the contact lists, um, Technically, the agents, but I mean, obviously, they're subcontractors. They're not, yeah. you're not actually purchasing that. But, you know, the copy machine, if they owned it, which most of them didn't, um, and then walking away from their debts and reconstructing it into a company that made sense. So I did that like a couple times and realized, wow, this really works because we're buying companies that are losing $70,000 a month, Oof. plugging our stuff into it and turning a $30,000 profit the next month. Wow. Because, I mean, obviously we're cutting a lot of debt and payments out of what we were doing with an asset purchase. But I I, I realized this was a way to to scale something that was like a a system that could be repeated. Hmm. My my mentors in my life had always told me, you need a repeatable system to grow anything. Until you've developed a repeatable system, you don't have a business. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got something you're working a lot at and probably going to go out and link out at some point. So yeah. once we had that, the phone kept ringing because everyone's in trouble and we kept buying and it's another state and another state. I had to move to California. Um, it was terrible having lived in San Diego. It was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I think until I was moving to California, it was still just a, well, we can make some more money doing blank. But around that time, I realized, you know, we have something that during this time window that we're in, 
we can create something massive overnight practically. Wow. Because we have almost no risk with the money we're putting out to get into like Denver, Colorado or wherever we're going to go next. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it was just go time. Um, I, I shed uh, partners that were an issue that were doing nothing but wanted all the money. You know, <laughs> some, somehow you end up with those people in partnerships. I don't know how. I, I tried hard not to, but I did. Yeah. You know, got, got the, got the um, management team focused and working on their own replacements as they need to go up to another level. And uh, we just, oh, that's so good. just started buying like crazy. Yeah, so you were looking <laughs> wow. at succession plans. Yeah, and, and even my own, like there are things I wanted to make sure I did and didn't do so that someday I could sell this. I didn't want it to be, you know, the David Wolf, you know, real estate company. Um, I, <laughs> I didn't really even want to get out there and talk to people anymore because I didn't want to be my face and about me. Yeah. I wanted to be this corporation and what makes it work. And that, that turned out pretty well for me when I went to sell. <laughs> wow. Excellent. So David, one thing that popped up for me and what you shared, and I think people need to hear that message now because you talk about, you know, 2007, 2008 and nine, you know, we've, we've got a bit of a challenge going on right now in the business world, a huge challenge with the pandemic. And one thing you did we had a guest, one of our first guests was a guy named Mark LeBlanc. And one of the things he said is, when you have something going on in the economy, like 9-11, like 2008 and 9, one of the most important things you can do is create new things. And that's exactly what you did. You said, what I have, th- this model doesn't work. I could sit and keep trying to do this, but you said, I have to do something different and that was your version of running to the fire was to create something new is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, most people copy what everybody else is doing <laughs> and make like little incremental changes to it. And then, so you have little incremental growth, um, to have something different. You know, like, like you could take something like SpaceX, hmm. they could have worked on a more efficient engine or something so that they were 6% more profitable than NASA. Instead, they sit there and go, hey, how about we have our spaceship come back to Earth and land on its own? Everyone's like, oh, that's freaking nuts. You're insane. It's kind of funny. They're, they're now doing everything in space for everybody. Um, that's what you have to do is, you know, people will call it innovation. People call it whatever, but you have to get out of the box that everybody's in and take a look around and say, what else could we do? And a lot of times you get the idea from like other industries that they do. Absolutely. It's a simple process there that everybody does, but where you are, everyone like that's heresy or something because you just don't do that. <laughs> now, did you find that, did you import people from other industries to help in, uh, I guess, stimulate some of that innovation or was it just, you, uh, you had a pretty broad perspective in your mind? Well, I, I think as we brought in services, like other services, like financial services we brought in. So we had to bring in stock people. You know, they obviously look at the economy and, and making money are different than a real estate agent does or a mortgage broker. Yeah. Um, the tech people we brought in, because we, we actually made our own cloud computing system at the time. Uh, we had virtual servers all around the, the country. They were all connected through the internet. And when you had someone sick in Los Angeles or there was work that really needed to get done and they were backed up, people in the East Coast 
could actually log in out there and get that work done before people are even at work. Um, you know, it's it's uh, important to be to be innovating in that way and, and 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 looking outside of what you're doing and realizing that when these people make these suggestions, just because nobody else does it, it might be a good idea. At yeah. the time, looking back at it. If maybe I had worked on our cloud computing system a bit, I would have made more money since Amazon <laughs> at the same time was trying to figure out how to do it. And here we were doing it on a small scale, but it was a good idea in the early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. So David, talk about, a lot of people throw the word scale around and scaling up. And in your case, it ended up being a very large enterprise. But for some people, scaling up, does not necessarily mean a giant enterprise, but it's going beyond, as you said, just that here's this thing we do that's very dependent on me. You, you got to find, you know, the right people to replace yourself with, you know, uh, you got to get over the fact that because they don't have the same passion about your idea because it's your idea and they only do the job 70% as good as you can, you still have another person conducting all that business that you no longer have to do and you can move on to other things. And then you find another person to replace another part of yourself, get yourself out of the way because that's what happens to entrepreneurs. They, they, they get into a, a like founder syndrome. You know, you started this thing, you're the best at it, you know, everything and you're irreplaceable. And the simple truth is you're not that important at all. Once the thing's going, um, you need to get out of the way and work on higher level activities to grow your company. Um, you can't answer the phone anymore. It doesn't matter if you're the best salesperson in the world, 25 people can replace you really easily and they'll be selling a lot more than you can by yourself. So, um, with scaling for anybody, yeah, replace yourself so that you are now out only doing, because literally about four or 5% of the activities in a business, any business, is what grows the company. It's what brings in more revenue, opens new doors, and those are the only things you should be doing at that point. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. The Impact Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Cartavera. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, resources, events, and a community to help you grow. At Cartavera, we believe that you can't grow a business bigger than you, that your company is limited by your growth. We blend personal growth with leadership, team, and business growth to give you a single place to grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. You can find out more at cartavera.com. Welcome back. I'm curious, David. So it's clearly this didn't, well, I'll ask it. It seems like it didn't apply to you, that you did a good job of letting go pretty quickly and finding those people, but you built a big enterprise. I'm guessing you had some leaders who struggled with that letting go as they moved. So oh, yeah. if you, so what did you do with them to, ha to coach them into the letting go process? I, the first thing I did, number one, definitely I'm coaching them. I'm, I'm, their, I'm their leader. I'm trying to make, make them understand where they're going and their, their, um, their path that they're on. And I, and I would use my own failures to point out how I had gotten this wrong. And this is why I'm saying blank to you. Um, like there, there's a major problem online today with people selling courses and, and being coaches and life coaches when they're 18 years old. And, you know, they're, they're trying to tell people how to do things they've never done. 
you know, as a leader, you should have already done it because you should be the person out front. Yeah. You should be the one, the vanguard with all the arrows in your back. <laughs> and then you can go, hey, guys, I know this looks great what you're talking about. However, here are the eight things wrong with it that yep. you cannot fix because I've already tried this and I've wasted millions of dollars in some cases. <laughs> I gave one manager an example of how I blew $7 million in a month with a bad decision that I rushed into because it seemed, it seemed convenient at the time. I didn't do my due diligence. I said, so you are going to call two other people and you are going to like look into this this afternoon. You're not just going to make a snap call and blow 7 million bucks because I'll fire you if you do, number one. <laughs> number two, like learn from my mistakes. Like I completely messed this up five years ago and I was doing the same thing you are. Um, so I, I made sure I always used my failings to illustrate how this is why I'm telling this to you. Um, not because I'm the boss and I'm right and do it. Um, right. Because, and then I also would say, I'm not sure we need to look into this ourselves because this is uncharted territory for me as well. Uh, you have to be able to admit that you don't know everything because you don't. Period. Absolutely. Wow, that David, that is so refreshing <laughs> because, you know, one of the things that keeps coming across our path, both through the podcast and Craig and our independent businesses is so many leaders don't do any of the things you just said. Right. They don't, they don't share from their, well, they share from their experience, but it's from an arrogance place. It's right. from an ego place. Let me tell you all the things I did. So you should listen to me because I've been incredibly successful versus let me tell you about the place where I really crashed and burned here. Yeah. And, and saying what you said, that simple statement of, you know what? I don't know the answer. And I think, yeah. you know, one of the things we've talked about so much here, and I know I do when I speak now, is the, an the answer is clear. Everything you've described is what leaders need to do and be. But there's very few leaders that are actually doing it because it terrifies them. Because they have a belief, I think it's a very old model that says, I have to be in charge, in control, have all the answers, never miss a beat, and I have to be perfect. That's what leaders do. And that's not what leaders do, in, in our opinion. Yeah. It's, it's what leaders that fail do. Because <laughs> eventually, <laughs> you know, there, again, there's a reason why, you know, when, when you look at the statistics, depending on the decade, the, the, the economic situation, somewhere between 90 and 96% of companies do not make it to year 10. Hmm. And it's because of that, um, a lot of it's arrogance. We're going to go down this road no matter what happens because I say so. Hmm. Um, there are times when you're wrong. You're a human being. Nobody's infallible. I don't care, you know, Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos and all these people, they, they blow it big time all the time. And they, they have a lot of zeros connected to their mistakes in, in the world they operate in. They're not perfect in spite of everything they've done. So, you know, you, you, you gotta, you, you gotta know that, that there are times where somebody else has some experience that you don't on your team and, and they're probably more right than you are. And you need to learn from that. And so people don't do it. And then, you know, when you go back to the numbers, even that 10 to 4% of companies that make it, it's something like 0 0.5, 0.4% of them are doing over a million dollars a year in revenue. The rest are in some version of they still exist and they're making some amount of money and that's it. Um, not everybody needs to grow a giant company, obviously. A lot of people just, they need something that takes care of their life instead of a job. Um, 
but there's nothing wrong with doing the activities that can lead to something big. You can choose not to go there. It'd be nice to have the option instead of like, you're just stuck at 150,000 a year and it's never going to change. Um, yeah. That's how I look at everything, like ocean habitats. It could be a multi-million dollar company because there's a $450 million potential market just in Florida for it. Um, you get 10% of that, it's a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know if you'll ever get there because uh, I'm kind of doing this with my kids, but I leave the door open because you never know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I want to make sure we talk, David, about um, the passion project and particularly from this perspective, if I'm a listener out there, it would be easy for me to hear you and say, that's just what I thought. In order to do what you love, you either have to make no money or you have to be incredibly successful in something else and become a multimillionaire and then you can go do your passion project. Basically, passion projects don't exist for everyday people. And you know, what, what would you say to someone who's thinking that? Well, I would tell them they're wrong. <laughs> uh, to me, the, the only difference between a passion project and any other business you could start is, is sitting there in the planning of it and saying, okay, I want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. You know, who am I impacting with this? What problem am I solving for them? If you're solving any kind of problem for people, the money's going to come along with it. You know, Ocean Habitats solves a problem of wealthy property owners who don't like seeing jello behind their house in the water. Um, they want to do something because they're sick of politicians doing nothing. They have the financial resources to do just about anything. So to spend $10,000 lining their dock with as many units that can fit, for many of them, that's a no-brainer. They just pull out their American Express card. Let's do this. So when you know, I started this, like restarted it, I knew it solves a problem. Hmm. We got, got, got a little lucky of between a hurricane coming through and proving that our units survive without an issue in it, and then having some of the major water discharge red tide cyanobacteria that all happened a couple years after we started. I mean, that helped boost us faster. It's funny. But, I don't, you know, I don't this, usually hear people say, yeah, oh, we were fortunate that the hurricane came through. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> literally Hurricane Irma hit where we had 99% of our units in Marco Island, Florida. Wow. Um, that, that's where the first little foothold we got of, of getting people to find out about us. And uh, we lost one unit out of 208 in the water. Uh, because a boat destroyed itself and its dock and our unit and everything else because it, it broke free of its lashings when the eye wall came through. Yeah. Um, up until then, there was always this question of what happens if there's a hurricane? Is this just all going to be debris and gone? And, and I'd say, now they're designed. Like the water flows through it. I'd give all the, the kind of technical answers of why they'll be okay, but I couldn't actually sit here and go, hey, we've had hundreds of units get hit by a Category 5 hurricane, basically. <laughs> So then that happened and we lost one because a boat fell on it, basically. Um, you know, we had units hanging in 155 mile an hour winds hmm. and none of them fell apart. So it answered that question for us and got us going, you know, big time. Um, and that it doesn't matter whether that's a passion project or you know, a company that you're running. You know, you have to get over these like hurdles, these these resistance walls that people want to spend money with you. Hmm. Um, and once you do that, 
well, then the rest is history. It just helps when it's a passion project and it's something that you're in love with and it can, it's making a difference. It feels better. It's like accomplishing that than just, we increased our bottom line 17% this, this year. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is exciting, but it's more exciting when that means you put 500 more units in the water than you did last year. To me, that's like awesome because I know the numbers of what that is, what it adds up to when it's 30,000 a unit times 500 more units than last year, you know, it's, it's billions of gallons of water. So being processed, which is awesome. Um, yeah. But, you know, for, back to your question with, with, you know, passion projects are impossible to, to, to make big in some way or financially successful. If you are solving a problem for people and you do some marketing in some intelligent way, your passion project will probably get bigger than you plan on it being. Um, whether you're helping the homeless or you know feeding people or getting shoes for people in other countries or whatever it may be, there are some people out there who have some massive nonprofit corporations helping other human beings or helping the environment. And it started off with, I just retired and I want to go do this thing, mm-hmm. help some people out with my spare time. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you said that I, I think is very interesting is that you were talking about San Marco Island, 90% of your units were there because you got a foothold there. And this is one of the things that I, I tell my clients all the time, just focus on a niche, own that niche. Once you get that establishment, then you can start expanding. But you started out, you you sold into that area, and I'm guessing there was a lot of word of mouth that went on with that. Yeah, we, we were able to get some help like... Um, Number one, it helps that the entire island is canals. It's like Venice, mm. basically. Uh, okay. So that's benefited like 400 miles of canals in, the, in this island. Um, but we were able to get like the, the Chamber of Commerce and different people who had quarterly magazines to do stories about us. Okay. You know, because we had no advertising budget. We had nothing. Um, mm. We were able to stand in front of city council, which is on TV, you know, and talking about what we're doing, getting permission. Uh, and... It just happens, you know, the age demographic of our people, they're 55 plus, they, they watch things like that. They read these magazines. So yeah, it, it started really slow. Our, our first installation, we put in four units <laughs> and they were actually units I built in college that were on Sanibel Island, Florida, that we took out of the water and brought down there because we didn't even have the money to build any. We had to go like um, bring stuff back to life. And uh yeah, then word of mouth. It's it's you know in Florida there's season when everyone's down. The snowbirds are here, so if someone sees a thing floating in the canal across the the, the way. They they go, hey, you know what is that? Ah, oh, <laughs> I got my own habitat. I got fish everywhere. It's great. You should get some. And the kind of neat thing is because it's it's wealthier people. After a while, you know, like the neighbor across the tr- street puts in five. And the guy calls you back and only has one. Now he wants to get up to 10 because, you know, I'll be damned if Rich is going to like have more than me. (laughs) So you get this like competition between people um, trying to help the environment more by one-upping each other, which is- What, you only have five? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, you really went cheap there. (laughs) Wow. Nice. So, you know, but yeah, so it it spread around the island fairly quickly. it helped that the city government decided to put a few in. They were looking for a way to say that they're helping the environment to get the state of Florida <laughs> off their back. You know, again, you have, you have to take advantage of opportunities like that. Yeah. So they spent 7,500 bucks and put some in the water. Uh, they put 25 units in the water. 
and now they have over 1,500 units on the island. Wow. Uh, the residents, residents took over. They're like, hey, this is something I can do now. I like that. And I'm not, I'm not waiting for the next election cycle to try to fix what's going on. Wow. Um, Excellent. So... So my takeaway, David, your message to those people who say they have a passion is, but they're concerned about making money is, you can make money on a passion project, you can build a business, unless your passion is for something that nobody wants or cares about. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't solve a problem. <laughs> there are 8 billion people on the planet. There's, chances are there's some people who are into what you're into. <laughs> you know? I'm sure there's a few areas you can go over. No, but <laughs> well, that was one of the things that really launched Amazon so well was that you could get the books that your Barnes and Noble wasn't carrying. Right. You know, it was, the, it was those long tail books that there weren't a lot in production or, or whatever it was, but you had this massive selection. And so, yes, there are people that like almost everything out there much to and other people's chagrin. <laughs> the, the reality is you don't need millions of customers to have a successful business. Right. You know, you need about a thousand raving fans out there and you have a million dollar company usually. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you're selling like $10 sunglasses and you need a few more, but. It's um, even better if you have subscriptions. Yeah. There, you know, it, it, it doesn't take a, a mass following. It just takes a following. <laughs> you can get there. Gotcha. So David, this has been really fascinating because it talked about business and leadership and scaling, which is somewhat unique topic. Not a lot of our guests have built very large enterprises as well as combining your transition into your passion work. Uh, the question I wanna ask you here to kind of put a bow on it is, Craig and I have asked you a number of questions about you know, what it takes to scale, what it takes to get through those difficult times. What's the question we haven't asked you that you need to answer for our listeners? Something they need to know about scaling or leadership? Um, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, briefly. Uh, it's about focus. This is something that I believe in. It's something that I, I teach people who hire me as a, as a business consultant or, or coach. Um, back to that 4% of things that, that move the needle. Uh, one of my mentors was Gary Keller, who who started yeah. Keller Williams Realty, and you know, his book. book, the one the one thing, is like yeah. the fifteen dollar version of his fifty thousand dollar a year coaching program. <laughs> it's an awesome uh, book. It's an awesome book, and it and it's true. Um, there is only one, sometimes two, but they're usually related to each other. Things in your business that what whether you're sitting with a piece of paper trying to figure out what to do or you got a company that's been floundering for eight years and you're trying to break out of where you are. There is so much stuff in business to do, <laughs> to be yes. busy. Um, but there's a, a tiny, narrow, little fraction of those things that actually will create your company or enlarge your company. And you have to sit down, literally print them out if you have to, to get organized, your to-do list, and look at that list and say, what is the one thing on this, on this list that if I did it, it made everything else either go away or become much easier, cheaper, simpler, whatever mm -hmm. um, to accomplish. And it, you don't have to be a genius and you don't have to have a coach $50,000 a year yelling at you on the phone. You can figure this out pretty simply looking at it. It is the one thing you need to do, period. You accomplish that, your company will move forward. All the other stuff either needs to wait 
which is what I do with a lot of things. They can just wait. Like I got a website from six years ago that's garbage for ocean habitats, but I'm just getting around to finally having something real and sales funnels and all these things. It wasn't important until now because it's, it's, it's in the, in the way of scalability. Um, but if you do that, you will be successful. Have, have a VA, have an employee, have somebody else do all this busy work you do the one thing that's important and you will be shocked at how quickly you will accomplish, you know, the goal of we need to add X amount of dollars or we need to add a location or, you know, whatever it may be um, with your business. Uh, I've watched it work over and over and over again with people I coached. It worked for me. It worked pretty well for Gary Keller. He has the largest real estate company in the Western hemisphere. Uh, It works. Gotcha. Well, let me ask you a follow-up, David. In the people you coach and talk to, and in your own experience, which is the bigger challenge? Deciding what that one thing is or that 4 to 5%, so it's the discernment process, or is it staying focused on that which you have selected? It, it's always staying focused. Um, people make the mistake of they procrastinate. I mean, everybody does. I procrastinate with things. Uh, nobody's perfect. But yeah, you know, that one thing needs to be first thing in the morning, first thing accomplished is you have your time block of one or two hours, whatever you think it takes per day to work on that. And that's all you do. And the cell phone's off and the do not disturb is on and your secretary knows, don't call me, don't open the door, nothing. I got to get this done. People like they know the one thing they need to do, but they go, ah, you know, I've got to go do this and that. And my wife needs me to pick up this and I'm just going to get this done. And this afternoon, I'm going to sit down and do that. (laughs) And then pretty soon it's, and this evening after dinner, I'm going to tell my wife, it's just an hour. I'm going to go do this. And then pretty soon you're telling yourself when everyone's asleep, I'll go do it when it's quiet and it never happens. And so you're in the same boat, even though you know what you should be doing. Uh, nothing's happening because you're not getting it done. You might as well be working on one of the other 9 million things in the company to do that, that accomplishes nothing for you. Uh, that this is human nature. I don't know. It, it, it's important and you need to do it. It's like, there's like some part of your brain that says, no, not now. <laughs> Wait till well, later. <laughs> well, my theory on that is, uh, Well, and Craig knows this, my theory on a lot of things comes back to this, that somewhere in there, it's fear based. There's there's because there's some risk to it. If it's if it's really important, it's the thing that's most uncertain. It's the it's the gray area. It's the space where you're leaning out over the tip of the skis. And if I don't do it, then I don't have to face that risk. Yeah, I I agree with you with, with the fear factor. Fear, fear is the thing you have to overcome you know, in business constantly because it, it is that uh, fight or flight thing in the lizard part of your brain. Of it is easier to run away and, and not have the risk than to go and face it. So, um, yeah, that, that is something people have to get to overcome. You need to have fear in what you're doing because if, if you're not doing something big enough where it's scary, you're probably wasting your time with whatever you're working on. But you have to overcome that fear realize it's a good thing that you have it it means you're you're reaching and uh also know that fear is going to stop about 98 percent of your competitors they're going to fall away without you doing anything because the fear is going to get the best of them so just wow. make sure you're in that two percent that can let the butterflies settle and keep going a lot of people i don't think take the take the time to step back and and realize what it is 
You know, it's just like they, they see these blocks and like Jeff and I were talking earlier this week or last, whatever it was. And it was about, you know, what we were doing with launch and how we had delayed certain things. And, and it just came back to, okay, what's, what's holding us back? Why are we not doing this thing that both of us committed to? And, you know, we were trying to figure out, okay, what, what are we afraid of in this, in this thing? But until we named it, until we made it real and said, okay, this is the thing, what are we going to, what are we going to do about it? It's, it's just going to sit in the back of your mind. Yeah. Best thing to do is grab the bull by the horns and (laughs) figure out what you're going to do after that. Yeah. Run run towards the fire, run towards the fire. Yeah. There's a lot of money to be made in the fire. And I don't know if either of you have heard this story. I'll, I'll share this briefly. Have you ever heard the story about the lion and the antelope? I don't think so. So it's, a, it's an ancient story, the way it was told to me. It, you know, it goes back generations to tribal cultures. And if you think about the antelope, lions love antelope. They, that's their, probably their favorite meal. It's, it's young and it's, you know, it's great meat. The problem is the antelope can outrun the lion. Right. Almost every time. The lion needs to be smarter than the antelope. But the way the lion hunts the antelope, they say, well, they do it in packs. Well, they do. But what they do is they'll get a couple of the old lions and they put the old lions in the tall grass where you can't be seen because the old lions can't chase down the antelopes anymore. Then the young lions go to the other end of the valley and they chase the antelope towards the tall grass. And (laughs) When they get to the tall grass, the old lions stand up and roar. (laughs) And the antelopes turn around and run back to their death. Wow. And all they needed to do was to run past the old lions because the old lions could never catch them. But they turn and run away, and that's that's their doom. And I, I heard that story about eight or ten years ago, and it's a great reminder for me of ahead the answer is ahead yeah right through through i I, i've always felt even if you're going the wrong direction at least you're moving (laughs) you you can always circle around um you you just don't you want to be standing still uh be moving (laughs) yeah i love the way zig ziglar put it he said go as far as you can as far as you can see and once you get there you'll be able to see farther (laughs) right have some faith (laughs) yeah that's so, right. David, this has been wonderful. I, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it would be fascinating and different, and I really appreciate all your wisdom today. Yeah. Is there anything in particular you want to promote for our listeners? Um, well, actually, I, I am starting up my, my coaching uh, services. And um, whether you, you get to my website, which is uh, davidjwolf.com, W-O-L-F-F, uh, whether you go there or you just listen to this podcast, you're simply going to be emailing me. It's David at davidjwolf.com. Um, the website doesn't even exist right now. It might be up <laughs> until Friday. Okay. But um, I, I have decided to get back into the, the game of helping people um, become successful or maybe more successful than they think they can. Now, with uh, that, is it specifically in the real estate or is this? No, it's. I, I do have some, some specific real estate niches I'm, I'm going to be working in, but it's business in general. Okay. I, I've, I've helped people with private water bottle labeling companies, uh, 
a plumber, uh, and like you name it. Uh, to me, a PNL is a PNL, and there you have to structure your business right. And if you're doing the right things, it's going to grow, and it's going to work. And like we already talked about, that whole focus aspect is a big part of um, being successful in business. And usually, just teaching if that's the only thing they learn from me, they'll they'll be around ten years from now instead of on their fourth business that's failing. Um, that's how I look at it. So I want to try to help people out that way. Wow. Great. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. Uh, and thanks again, David. We always close with one of our signature questions. And my question for you, David, is I want you to envision that you have the opportunity to have dinner with someone living. Who do you want to have dinner with? And what's the one question you're going to make sure you ask them? <laughs> I would, I'm sure you've had this answer before, but it, it would be Elon Musk. Hmm. And I would want to ask him how he gets so far outside the box with what he's working on, the solutions that he finds. Because the guy sounds like he's from Mars sometimes when he's talking <laughs> about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig tunnels in our Los Angeles. Well, he's digging tunnels in our Los Angeles now. It's like, <laughs> how the hell do you come up with that? Like, seriously. I... I I feel that I do a pretty good job of like trying to get to the 40,000 foot level and look down. And I feel like he's on the moon, you know, <laughs> staring down or something like, I want to ask him like, how do you get your mind into a way of thinking to get yeah. that far outside of where everybody else is and see the obvious answer that nobody else can see because they're just not high enough above the problem. Hmm. I'd like good to get one. better at that myself. Yeah. We did have someone that said, one other person said Elon Musk, but they had a different question for him. So this is new fodder for everyone. Thank you again, yeah. David. And thanks for sharing your time and wisdom with us and our listeners. Yeah, awesome having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I had, a, had a blast. If you like this podcast, you'll love the Cartavera Tribe. The Cartavera Tribe is a community of growth-committed leaders who want to connect, engage, and grow themselves, their people, and their businesses. Cartavera is a leadership development ecosystem with training, coaching, assessments, and events to challenge you and help you grow. And the Cartavera Tribe is a membership like none other. You'll get live access to Craig and Jeff where you can ask questions, as well as masterminds where you can get answers from other leaders who've already solved your greatest challenges. You'll have access to additional interviews and a variety of courses, tools, and resources to help you achieve your biggest goals. We have monthly game days where we have challenges and competitive games to help you grow your leadership capabilities. And you'll get a personal growth Sherpa who will guide you to help you reach your growth goals. To find out more, go to cartavera.com. That's C-A-R-D-I-V-E-R-A.com. See you on the inside. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.